This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libriideaslibrary.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship.
All right. Well, good evening, everyone. As Peter kindly introduced me, I'm Priscilla, and it's my pleasure to, an honor to be with you this evening. And so I'm going to skip the introduction part of my talk because now you all know everything about, there is to know about me. But I will introduce where the race to connectedness comes from. And it's, it basically started around the death of George Floyd. And following his death, I just had a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions, etc. And so from there, I thought, okay, well, with all these questions and all of these issues that were raised, I am just sharing my thoughts with you. I am not the authority on what we should do with the death of George Floyd or what the church should do, but it's really just my thoughts. And I'm so happy to hear your thoughts or anything that you know, comes to mind on this issue. So starting with May 2020, George Floyd, his death is kind of everywhere in terms of social media. And I guess the response of someone who is, was born in Geneva rather than in America is slightly different. The, the, the narrative around being African or black is very different. So I, I saw this death and my response was, I think for the first time, it hit me that this person really could have been my brother or my cousin or my father, which sounds maybe obvious, but it never really hit me that you could, that that could happen to someone that was so, in such an unsolicited way. So it really hit me and I thought, wow, I guess this is not just this is not just something happening on the other side of the world, but it's, you know, if I were to go there on holiday, that could be my reality. So obviously very disturbing. And so when this happened, I thought, well, this is clearly a, an outrage. It's an injustice. And so I thought, well, why isn't everybody speaking about this? Or I should speak about it to colleagues and to you know, to friends, to strangers, to anyone who would listen. And as I thought about this, I realized, well, not everyone was that, you know, that into the topic as, as I was, or that concerned in that, in that sense. And interestingly, because obviously we were in the middle of lockdown, I thought, you know, it reminds me a little bit of when in November 2019, I don't know if you remember, but we heard about a virus in China, right? And we thought, oh, there's a virus in China. That's great. And we, we would just go, I, personally, I just kind of went on with, you know, my life until the virus in China was my virus and my reason that I couldn't go to work and I couldn't go to the shops, etc. But I could really relate to the fact that, well, if it's not in my backyard, well then, I mean, does it really affect me enough to have a conversation with everybody that's willing to listen? So that was the, that was the initial thought. But as I went on and did have conversations, 
I, there, what was revealed, I guess, or my thought process was that there's clearly some kind of disconnect. And as we seek to resolve this disconnect, we've gone about it in different ways. But I thought, well, ultimately any form of racism is about not having a connection and how do we restore that sense of connectedness and six different things came to mind and so i titled this talk the race to connectedness and six things that i thought well would really help in restoring connect connection so when i considered this issue George Floyd has been murdered. I saw that on the one hand, it was on social media, people were talking on church panels, they would say, oh, okay, you know, people should come and talk about this. And I thought, okay, well, that's great. And then on the other hand, there were, uh, there was a side where in my personal life, some people wanted to talk about it, other people maybe not so much. And what I saw happen was that on, on the one hand, there was like, there was a, it was like a release that some people who felt that they never got to talk about this issue could suddenly talk and people were suddenly willing to listen, which I think is great. And it seemed as though those people were getting it's like you've been suffocating and suddenly someone gives you air and you think, wow, okay, I can finally start to breathe. And on the one hand, there was that side of the narrative. And initially it was like that for me. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm traumatized and I ha now someone's listening. But what I found is that after, I don't know, six months or you know, six months turned to eight months, nine months, a year, a year and a half, two years, I found that the narrative was still around, tell me about your experience, tell me about what has happened to you. And I think that that is very, very, very powerful to be heard because it tells someone you matter, it tells someone you're important, it tells someone that whatever you've experienced is worth listening to and it's, it's not worth being discarded if it's important to you. And so I'm just gonna pause and we're gonna do a little exercise, if you're willing. So the exercise is to think of something which you, is very deeply important to you. It could be in society, it could, if you wanna get personal, please share your personal stuff with the person you trust but something that's very important to you. And it's gonna be a short exercise if you can just think about it and turn to the person next to you or in threes and say why it's an important issue. And if you can, think of something that generally is overlooked either by society or by people that you think should look at it. It could be the government, it could be your parents, it could be your siblings, it could be your work, your boss. And in response, so we'll spend just maybe two minutes sharing, and then after those two minutes, the other person 
is just going to, it's not about giving your opinion on what they've said, but just reflect back to them what it is you've understood about what matters to them. Does that sound doable? I'm going to just repeat just so. <laughs> so first per person A thinks of something that's deeply important to them, but that is often overlooked by X, Y, or Z person or entity, shares that for two minutes, and person B listens, and then after the two minutes is up, spends a minute or two just reiterating what it is that the person A has said back to them, and just making sure they've fully understood what it is that matters to them. Shall we try it? Okay. Any questions about? Can we just do it one way? Let's do it to each other. We just one to listener, one to talker, and feedback. We don't then switch roles or anything else. Well, we yes, I was going to say now you can switch, but we let's let's do that. So we'll do two minutes. We'll switch for well, the person will respond for a minute, and then we'll do two minutes the other, and then switch. Okay. All right. Please go ahead. Okay. That was <laughs> sweet. Well, I am very intrigued and interested to hear later on what kinds of topics you came to mind and what kinds of things you have on your mind that you might feel is being overlooked. And I think, I think everybody has something, whether it's you yourself feel overlooked or you think there's an issue that's being overlooked. But I personally think that, so which is the first point, uh, being heard is a, a kind of a foundation to building connection with someone, especially if they're in some way downtrodden, oppressed, or, uh, or, or feel that way. Being heard, I think, is, is the first step, and I think it goes a long way when someone will just listen, not give you their opinion as to why you're right or why you're wrong or... Maybe I'll stop touching that. But they'll just listen and just give you the space to say what it is you have on your mind. The verse here, James talks about uh, to be quick to, um, quick to hear and slow to speak, which reminds us of that. So as a first step, being heard. And I remember having a conversation, so at the time, I was working at a school, and I spoke to one teacher who's a Caucasian man, and he was asking me about, well, what do you make about this whole George Floyd thing? And I remember having a conversation where he was just asking questions, and I was saying uh, it wasn't anything groundbreaking because I, I don't think that I've been, uh, as I said, growing up in Geneva, I don't think I've been at the receiving end of any anything like maybe had I grown up in, in the U.S. But I was, I was saying to him, well, I think in these conversations, awareness goes a long way. So, you know, you might walk down a hall and you might think it might be something tiny like, oh, this person who I've seen being super friendly walked 
walked past me and didn't say anything, they didn't smile, they looked kind of grumpy. And it's just the awareness that in your list of the kinds of reasons they might have to do that, one of them in a black person's mind might be, oh, maybe it's because I'm black. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. And I remember him saying, that's interesting because I would never think if I walked down the hall, oh, he didn't say good morning because I'm a white man. He, he would, I, I would just think he's impolite or I'm not, you know, he would just, and so just that conversation was one where I thought, oh, okay, this didn't shatter any, you know, any, it wasn't a groundbreaking conversation, but it was just one where he said he thought, I'll just bear that in mind. And, you know, it wasn't, it was a small thing of being heard. So as I said, time went on and I found that we're having this thing of being heard, what has happened to you. Uh, you know, there was a kind of in churches, in, you know, on social media. And I found that two things started to happen. One, I remember being at a church discussion and they were having a panel about racism and one of the worship leaders was saying, so she's a white woman, and she was saying when I, when I spoke to her later, I'm scared of saying the wrong thing. And I was thinking, I completely believe in being heard, but I think when there's a focus on, well, you know, just tell me what has gone wrong and just keep telling me what has gone wrong, then there's a kind of a sense of whether it's guilt or shame that what one can take on oneself, which is not necessarily healthy. And, um, and the flip side of it, where as black people, we have, or I saw that some black people were calling things racism that really are not racist, as in that, that really are just, I, I think someone was just expressing their opinion about something or, you know, I, there's, there's a potential to go further than, um, than necessary. And I was thinking actually, particularly, this is particularly church-based, that when you, when there's a focus on, tell me what's what, about what's happened to you, uh, and you stay there. This may sound a bit weird or controversial, but I think that it's a different kind of slavery to say to someone or to for black people to say, my well-being is in your hands. It's, in, it's for you to do something so that I can feel better. It's a different kind of slavery. It's saying that I don't have agency, I don't have power. And that's not true. And I, I don't want to downplay the experiences that people have had because they, they are horrific and people have literally died. But particularly in the context of the church, I think it should be the kind of place where you can say, no, you don't have power over me because the, we are all under the same Lord and he is no respecter of persons. So step number one, being heard. 
so given that we don't just stay in the place of being heard, where do we go from there? Stop number two, to forgive. Uh, and so Paul writes that, uh, he says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And if there was anyone to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes. And within the context of the church, I feel that forgiveness is uh, paramount, if, if, if anything, in the context, again, within the church. I think one of the most tempting things in a movement like this is for black people to move into a sense of unforgiveness of anything that has happened to them in a sense of, well, now we have the quote unquote upper hand, like, well, now it's time for white people to do this towards black people. And I think in that sense, when you're in that position, you're in a very dangerous position because uh, there's that saying, you know, be careful when you think you stand lest you fall. When you're in the right or when you have been wronged, you're most at risk of saying, well, I, I don't need to forgive you because this has happened to me and I'm justified and I am justified, but that doesn't mean that I don't need to forgive. So in connectedness, I feel forgiveness is key because it's very hard to connect with someone that you feel bitter towards or someone that you, whose who's wrong against you has just blocked your ability to see them for who they are. Um, and I guess it goes, I guess it goes both ways. I remember when I was, when we were having all these conversations about George Floyd's death, one of the youth leaders that I led with, and I honestly commend her for being able to say this because I, I think that it's quite hard to say this as a white person. She said, you know, black people do matter, but white people matter too. So why, why are we kind of belaboring the point? And she said that she, she said she had read a post on Instagram saying, well, it's not that one matters more than the other. It's more that in this specific time, there's, a, there's an attention being brought to something that has been overlooked. It doesn't lessen one. It doesn't make one better. It just happens to be this particular time that is being spent on that. So... Uh, I say that because I guess there, there also is room for forgiveness uh, where it feels like, well, we're still talking about this issue. It feels like we've been talking about this issue forever. And, you, you know, sometimes it's a thought that, I don't know, I'm not white, but I feel that I could, I could potentially feel like that as a white person thinking, I feel like we've been talking about this forever. And it's hard to voice because you don't want to sound like you're just done talking about it, you know? So 
uh, so maybe there's forgiveness required on that point. You know, maybe someone's taking longer to heal than you think they should take. You know, you're like, well, this happened a while ago. Why are you still healing? You know, so forgiveness in in that sense. Um, I'm just going to consult my notes. So from forgiveness, step number three, speaking the truth in love. So the, I found that it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite linked to the point I was making about forgiveness, that um, when you feel fear about saying something you really think, you're not actually connected to someone. As, and I found that in, uh, in the church context, I thought, you know, if you, if you, Peter, you know, you see me and let's say I'm wallowing about a particular situation. It doesn't have to be about racism, but you see me wallowing about something. And if you think, I don't think you should be wallowing about that because, okay, let's say you know that I have a million dollars in my bank account and you see me wallowing about how poor I am, you know, but you think, oh, well, I don't know, she might be really offended if I tell her about, but within the context of speaking the truth in love, I think you are in a position to say you're believing a lot of crap about yourself. And you have a million, but you have a million dollars in your bank account, so you can shut up and you can stop. You, you can you can stop crying, you know. But I, I, when we have that fear about, and we're we start stepping on eggshells because, well, they might take it this way. We lose connection, and it means that I don't actually know what Peter's thinking because he's like, well, she's going to be offended. And there isn't any connection in that because I don't know that actually I need to stop wallowing because that's, he, he's, he, he has the right to call me out on things. And we lose the, we lose the, uh, the connection of being able to have hard conversations when we're in fear that, well, if I, if I say what I really think, or if I say what I really think, but it's misconstrued and it's taken as something that it's not, then I might be labeled as this, so let me not say it. Well, ultimately, you don't have a relationship with that person. I, I, I go to a, a, a club on Tuesdays, and uh, as part of this club, it's a club on like leadership and that kind of thing. And... <laughs> Not important. But anyway, the, one of the people who goes to that club is this, he's, a, a, he's an old Englishman, he's in his 70s. And I remember once he was talking about, I can't remember why he was talking about this, but he mentioned tennis. And he said, you know, I don't really like women's tennis. I prefer watching men's tennis. And he said, I know that that's, not appropriate to say nowadays, but I so personally, I so appreciated that he said that because I prefer watching men's tennis. And I thought, I'm glad that you feel the 
the, the ease to say what you really think. And if I profoundly disagree, I'll tell you why women's tennis is better. But I actually agree with you. And I don't think that your saying it makes you any less, uh, I don't know, I don't feel offended by it. I feel more connected to you by the fact that you were able to say it. So I think that speaking the truth in love enables us to really see each other. And that's why having forgiven, it's easier to speak the truth in love because when you're, I mean, when you're bitter against someone and they tell you something you don't like, I mean, way to sever a relationship, right? But once you've, once you've forgiven them and you're no longer seeing them through that lens, you have the opportunity to speak the truth in love. And if you're offended, you can also speak the truth in love and say, that offended me. I may not even know why that offended me, but I, I'm, I'm just showing you me and I'm just telling you that it offended me. And if we're acting in love, then we'll say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it. That wasn't my intention. But it gives both people ownership. You know, you, you can take ownership of the fact that I just didn't like what you said and I'm processing why, and the other person can take ownership and just true connection can start on that basis. So that's step number three. Bear with me. Oh yeah, I had put an example of, so I don't know if you know this, I, but one thing that I know uh, I've had several conversations about is that often, generally, let's say, I don't know, on the news or on TV, when Africa is referred to, people, people often say, oh, so I went to Hong Kong and I went to Australia and I went to Africa and I'm... And often it's kind of a joke among black people, like the, there are whole 53 countries that you went to, where did you go, <laughs> you know? <laughs> because there are billions of people in there. So uh, one of the examples I put in there is, you know, speaking the truth in love is when someone makes a comment like that, saying, you know, I'd love you to tell me exactly where you went uh, because it would, it would, oh, sorry, it's probably me moving. I don't know. There we are. It's my fidgeting. I, I, taking the responsibility to say, actually, well, if you, maybe if you know them a bit better, when you say that, this is what it means to me. Or when you say that, actually, it can be, it can be, mis, it can be interpreted this way, given that you're referring to cities and then you're referring to a, a, a whole continent in the same, in the same sentence. So, but it gives it, it, speaking the truth in love is saying that and taking, it, it takes taking ownership of what you think as it's so much easier for me to go back to all the other black people and say like, ugh, Africa was referred to as a country again, you know, it's so much easier to do that as opposed to say, to saying to the person, I don't think you meant it that way, but that's just how it's taken. So. That's step number three. Uh, step number four 
is, I'm not going to read out this whole text, but it's identifying. So Daniel was in, uh, in Babylon and in refer when he was praying to God, he prayed, but he included himself in what Israel had done. And I'm fairly certain he didn't do everything that he mentioned in that prayer, but he was able to say, I'm coming to God and I am identifying with all of the things that these people have done and I'm bringing it before God. And so after having forgiven and speaking the truth and spoken the truth in love to identify. So it can be either with people who look like you, but also with people who don't look like you. So for maybe for the black person, it's saying, well, the, 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 we were sold as slaves or we were slaves in, in a, in a foreign land and thinking, well, it's atrocious to have slaves, but well, someone in Africa must have been on the side of, must have sold you as a slave. One of your, one of your own must have sold you. Maybe there's identifying with, well, is there something in me that wants to dominate or exercise power over someone? I think it's something that everybody can relate to, irrespective of skin color. And saying, well, I can identify with that. And once you identify with it, I think it's very, it's harder to then point fingers and then say, well, you know, they've done this to me because you realize, well, actually, maybe it's just the grace of God that I'm not in a similar position. And even if it happened to me, because, you know, I can't change what I look like, can't change my skin color, I still can recognize the person in me who will, I don't know, I'm older than this sibling, so I will exercise my power over them, or I will, you know, I will assert myself over someone who can't speak up for themselves. I think everyone can relate to that, irrespective of what we, what we look like. And in identifying with, uh, with the sins of another and I guess nearly owning them, I think it brings a lot of healing because you're in a position to, it, it's, it brings everything kind of to an even playing field, if that makes sense. You're, you're in a position to say, well, I probably didn't do exactly what you did, but the heart is the same. And I can see what you did and relate to you as I would want someone to relate to me if I saw that I was wrong, if that makes sense. So, sorry, my phone is low, so it just keeps on shutting down. So I have to keep scrolling. Oh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's an iPhone, yeah. Um, oh. Is this yours? No, it's not. 
I have a... I don't know whose this is, but it's, like it's an iPhone charger and a battery source. Yeah. Thank you to whoever this is. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, fuck okay. I'm sure the person won't mind. We can always charge it later. Charge it up again later. Well. Try <laughs> it. Is it. I have a... Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's charging. Yes. Yeah. Thank you to the miscellaneous person. It's got three, this battery pack has three quarters power, so we should be good. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you to one of the students who's untidy enough to leave. <laughs> so. Thank you. I have another exercise, but this one is going to be just kind of for yourself. And I'd like you to think in your heart of one person who has done probably the most deeply hurtful thing you can think of. It could be a parent, it could be a friend, it could be your boss. It's something to us personally. To, to you personally. And to bring to mind what they did. So I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to think of what that is. then I'd like you to think about what might have been the root cause of that action. So it might have been jealousy, insecurity, a need for recognition or significance or a hunger for power, whatever it is. And then to ask where you have had that same need for the thing that you have identified. And if you've identified that, and if you do, if you feel that you, that is resolved for you, how was that need that you had met? Was maybe through close friends, maybe through reading something helpful, maybe through encouragement. How was, how was the need met? Or maybe it's still, maybe it's still there. I'm going to move from there to the next point, which is to comfort. So here Paul talks about someone having, someone having grieved the, um, 
the the church in Corinth, but he says, well, he's already been punished, but forgive and comfort him. And I was thinking in that exercise, when you identify what someone did to wrong you, but identify what it is in yourself that you can relate to in maybe what they, the reason they had for doing that, then from there, once you've forgiven them, you can then go ahead and comfort them. If you found, well, maybe that person was feeling hopeless, but I have hope, and here's what's given me hope, when we have forgiven someone, we can say, well, hey, here's some hope for you, because I guess that's where that was coming from. Easier said than done, I, gra I granted, but that's, that's the aim, that you can not just forgive, but also comfort uh, a person who, who wrongs you. I think as black people, well, how powerful, how powerful would it be if you saw or someone oppressed you and you could see, well, I, I identify with, with that need for power, etc. But actually, you don't, you're, you're not any more powerful by doing these things. You are significant without having to exercise your power over me. Or you, you, it's a false sense of pride to think that if I am put down, then you are elevated. Actually, that's not the case. Um, but you can only do that if that's been, that's been um, it's something that you're kind of free of. You're, not, you're, you're kind of free from their actions, if that makes sense. I'm conscious of the time, so I'm just going to go to the last one, which is unity. And I'm just going to read this psalm out. It says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down, the, down on the collar of his rope. It is, as if, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And some translations say, uh, for there God commands his blessing, where there is unity. And... I'd like to end with the fact that the Bible is full of people's, people's lives or people whose lives have been devastated by trials or, you know, some kind of suffering, but maybe through that suffering, often through that suffering, they have a... Uh, it ends in some kind of triumph. And the triumph seems so much greater because of the trial. If the trial hadn't been there, if there hadn't been, I mean, thinking of the story of Joseph, if he hadn't been sold by his brothers, if he hadn't gone to jail, if he hadn't, you know, been harassed by Potiphar's wife, he'd have just been, you know, prime minister of Egypt. Cool. But all of those things happened and you think, all of those things happened. Your brothers, your very own brothers tried to, well, not, not they didn't try, they sold you as a slave. That's so, I'm, I'm not sure if anything could be more hurtful than that, but he came out on the other side of that 
and it showed how 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 powerful it was that God favored him. It showed in a way that um, I think is pretty mind-boggling that you know as low as he was, that's how far he got because God favored him. And James says to consider it pure joy when you go through all kinds of trials because whenever you face trials of many kinds, the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not not lacking in anything. So I'd like to end with a series of questions. What is the perfection and completion and maturity and the lacking in nothing that God is bringing about in the church and in believers in and through racism? What if the extent of trial of black people was the floor of the extent of blessing God wanted to bring through them because of it? What is the resilience, the faith that has been refined and tested and made imperishable through racism? What is the gift to the body we're still missing out on because we're yet to see the fruit that comes from the suffering so that the whole body is refreshed? What can black people teach the body about forgiveness, about resilience, strength, Jesus, through the experiences they have been through? What kind of a church would it be? What what kind of a church would we be part of if the extent of division that there has been over race was replaced by the same extent of unity? What kind of power would lie in the church if the white man would wash the black man's feet, not out of inferiority, but out of service? What kind of power would lie in the church if the healthy black man would wash the white man's feet, not out of inferiority, but out of a healthy identity as he identifies with his savior? What kind of maturity would be born in this kind of church? The kind that has allowed God to, this is not a theological word, but milk everything that the enemy intended for evil and use it for the good, the edification, and the building up and maturing of the church. How much glory would God receive? Um, I think he'd receive all the glory because we're just not good enough to come up with that kind of church. Um, I want to be part of that church, one that takes back what the enemy has stolen, is not ignorant of his schemes, and reaps the harvest of the blessing that God has had in store all along. Are we willing to take the steps to be that kind of church? Well, thanks again. That was very interesting. Very good points. I love how you grounded the points in the in the Bible and the Scripture too. That was very very helpful. Um, and yeah, I, I guess um, it made me think about the place of courage in this, of of the courage to be honest. You put your your point about speaking um, the truth in love and not being superficial and safe, but actually saying something that might be a bit risky, but actually is an invitation maybe to connect. So I thought the, 
Yeah, I don't know if you wanted to say more about that, but I, it made me think about the courage could be help, a helpful thing for people to have in these situations, but they're, like every other, have you? Yeah. Um, no, I... thoughts on that more? I think it, I think it definitely takes, takes courage because you're both to receive it and to, to say it. Sometimes someone says something and you can tell that they meant well, but you can also, you also think, please don't ever say that again. <laughs> it takes courage to say, you know, you want to find the right words, you don't want them to think that you're, you know, you banish them from your, you just, how do I say this so that you, you know this is how it was taken, but that it's also not the end of the world, and it's such a, you know, there's so many things to think about, but I guess it's nearly like you would ra I, I'd rather an awkward conversation because you're not guaranteed it won't be awkward. It will right. probably be awkward. <laughs> but I'd rather an awkward conversation because I value that someone took the time to be awkward because they valued me enough to, because they wanted to be honest than, you know, say something that's like, I think you, I think this is okay to say even though it's not what I'm thinking, you know? So I think courage is required on both ends. Yeah, yeah, it made it reminded me of that. Yes, yes, yeah. Thank you, Priscilla. I, I'm just wondering what are, what are your questions out there, guys? Do you have any questions? Yes. Thank you. Um, I, I thought there was a, an objective truth in what you had to say. There's one thing I particularly liked, which through your own self-reflection, you you felt actually by taking on the current situation and the narrative that comes from perhaps critical race theory, mm. that you become a slave, you become an enslaved mm. and you recognise that you did not have to take that on mm. and actually your own freedom, self-respect was actually not taking it on and being empowered to to uh, to, to move past that. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was very important. I think a lot of damage has been done to the self-esteem mm. of, of black people, particularly mm. in this country. I think it's a different situation in particularly the southern states in America. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was lovely and I think the way it was grounded in scripture was very nice. Oh, it reminds me, uh, so I started thinking about this because one of my, I was having this discussion with one of my cousins who was, well, she was born in Ghana till she was about maybe 11 and she moved to the UK and she was I think she had been asked by her church maybe three four times can you come and speak to us George Floyd etc and she was really reluctant because she thought you know I grew up in Ghana being black is probably the most unremarkable thing about me <laughs> and then I moved to the UK and the narrative that I'm hearing is be a black family, you know, you know, maybe parents have split up, etc. And she said, my experience has been, my parents are still together, there was an emphasis on education, I went to a good university, there were so many opportunities for black people to go to university. And she was saying, it doesn't ring true in my head, the narrative that's being portrayed. It doesn't ring true in my head. It may ring true in other people's heads. And, it valid, and it's valid, but it doesn't ring true in mine. So she was just saying, well, 
I, I hear that it is some people's experience, but I'm not sure that the, the, the thing that you're wanting to hear or the thing that you're after is the thing I'm going to give you because I, I don't, I haven't had that experience. Or if I have, I think my, my upbringing uh, where, you know, you, you grow up in a black country has, I have a completely different perspective than someone who grew up in the Bronx or in, in this, you know, southern USA. And, and that's true. It doesn't mean we haven't had racist experience or, you know, have it, we haven't experienced racism. But it's, you know, if, if I, my natural reaction if something goes wrong is, you can go tell the police. I have, I know people and I have cousins in the US that say you would never go to the police as a black person. But that's just not my experience because the police where I'm from have been safe people, you know? So it's just that nuance of, well, who have you grown up to be and um, where I think when there's an emphasis on, you know, the, the, the story of how hard it's been, you can lose. Things have, things have also been pretty good for a lot of people. So, yeah. How does it get fixed? <laughs> ah, come back for round two. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think through honest conversations. And I think just, well, it's easy to say, but I think relationships just go a long way. Conversations, relationships uh, just just go a really long way, I, personally, I think. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Um, all right, Greg, and then gentlemen. Greg. Thanks. Can I, can I ask two questions? Is that right? So so I think one was on forgiveness. Yeah. So um, I was wondering if you, if you think like there's other limits to forgiveness in the sense of like that how that can kind of help address kind of issues of racism because um, what I was struck by when you were talking about that was there was, there was a, a shooting in America where um, someone walked into a Bible study and, and killed some, he's part of a black, so a black church. Um, this white person walked in and shot a bunch of black people um, in this Bible study. After sitting with them for about hours, it was a horrible, horrible story. Um, and there's a lot of media coverage of it. But what was never picked up in the media, so far as I heard, was when the person went on trial um, and the survivors gave testimony in court, they, they turned to the shooter and said that we forgive you. You know, we're Christians, it's really hard. You killed my, you killed my brother, you killed my father, you killed my, my aunt, but well, I forgive you. And that was, no one talked about that. But yeah, there was a lot of talk about various other kind of forms, like how theories of social justice would kind of interpret that event. Um, so, I, so it's like, there are people that are living that out, yet it just doesn't seem to like take root. I guess in, in, in terms of like a bigger conversation. So I just wondered, are there limits maybe to, to you know, forgiveness. Uh, and then the second question was on identity. Um, when you, reading those passages from Daniel, I really thought like, I could see how someone could read that and say, well, isn't that an argument for saying that there is some sort of like intergenerational guilt that, okay, so if you come from say like America and you have, you know, white skin, somehow you've inherited the guilt from previous generations and you, therefore you should pay reparations for things that were done, you know, centuries ago. Mm -hmm. um, 
which I don't think that was in any way the context that you were presenting yeah, no, that. But I can see how someone might read it that way as well and say, yeah, oh, what yeah, you yeah. is that, well, you should be identifying with that yeah. and you should be owning that. Um, I guess, would, how would you kind of respond to that if someone was to raise that and say, well, maybe we should be looking at it that way too? Okay. So, in terms of limits to forgiveness, are you asking, do you think, you know, for those victims to have said, we forgive you, was that a, a step too far because of the extent of what was done against them? Is that your question? No, I think it's more in the sense of like, yeah, I guess tackling kind of racism as a social yeah. issue because it, like, it seems like there are Christians out there who are who have suffered so horribly from this yeah. and are willing, still willing to forgive and yet this doesn't become part of the wider conversation about as a way past oh, it. Right. Yeah. Um, instead the conversation should be focused in very, kind of, you know, maybe the opposite right. side of things. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess maybe that's why, I, for, for me, this whole conversation was born out of how the church was dealing with this issue. Because, I guess, well, no, I, they're two very different worlds. I think to say, well, someone just killed your brother, forgive them, outside of the context of the church, I, ask me how to do that, I don't know. <laughs> there are some people, I mean, you might say it. But I don't know how you would do it. On what basis am I forgiving you? Why would I forgive you? I don't know. I definitely wouldn't do it if I didn't have a reason to. Or So I think the two contexts are very different. And I think that it's, yeah, they're, it, yeah, it would be great if they did talk about the fact that there is forgiveness and that they did do it. But sometimes... You know, you kind of wonder, are we talking about this because we're trying to solve the problem? Or are we talking about it because, you know, oh yes, there's another injustice and there's another injustice. Because it, it just breeds that division, you know. It, it just naturally, you just want to, you just want, you see it and you think, wow, that gives me a lot of reasons to be angry. It, it always does, because that's what injustice does and seeing injustice constantly will do to you. But... Yeah, I don't. I mean, why they don't show those things, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I. But but it, in terms of within the church, I don't think there are limits to what should be forgiven. Um, I think there are. There is wisdom as to what you do once you have forgiven someone, in terms of you know how you forgive them. But um, but I don't think there are any limits to forgiveness within the church. Or shouldn't be my personal thing. The second question was about these one. Identity and I guess. Oh, identify sort of and yeah, kind of guilt. Yes, I actually, generational guilt. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I had made a note about that because of the first point about feeling fear of saying certain things and um, I guess feeling well because I'm white. Well, it's as if I have done these things, and I think. I think for, for me, the difference is with, what, as Daniel is praying, it's like he's praying, but the point, from how I read it, the point is bringing some kind of restoration and healing, right? It's not, say, it's not um, a kind of, you know, self-flagellation because of fear of another person. See what I'm saying? Like, I if you if you if you feel 
my ancestors did something and I'm so sorry. It's like sometimes people say, this thing happened to me in the context of church. Because I go to church, I can say, oh, that really sucks. On behalf of the church, I'm so sorry, right? But that doesn't mean I think I did it and I feel guilt on behalf of the church. But I know that I carry something because I'm part of the church to bring healing to that person. So I'll offer it and I will identify with the church because of it. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, I think it's the, it's the separation of the fact that in the first case, as I've seen it with racism, people have that guilt only because there's a fear of, I might say the wrong thing, and rather than because they feel, I genuinely think that I'm a racist. It's, it's more about the other person thinking they are something than them actually identifying with the mm -hmm. sin. It seems that way, but maybe I'm wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank sense. you. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, I've heard it said, or people have said, and um, that black people get, you know, tired of talking about race. Um, you know, it's kind of like, what, what's the book called? Um, why I'm no longer talking. Yeah, about why I'm no longer talking yeah. about race, and that kind of thing about, you know, in a sense, white people want to maybe or feel they should talk about it, and that, but it's like bringing up hurts and things, and I don't know if, yeah, if you had a comment about that from your own experience, or, yeah, that idea, I, um, yeah, just, just what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, to be honest, I think it's quite hard, because I think that is probably the reality of certain people. <coughs> And it's also probably not the reality of other people. And it's, I would say, probably nearly impossible to know for any given black person where on that spectrum they are. So uh, it, it's, I, and, and maybe it's, you know, it's kind of sounding like a broken record, but that's kind of where relationship comes in. You, know, you, you meet someone and that person may be at the point where they really just want to tell you this is what has been done to me and how I felt overlooked and how I felt and then maybe that's where they are and maybe you meet 10 black people like that in a, in a row and then you know you meet my cousin and you think oh tell me but she goes I don't really have anything to tell you you know it's but that you some people are going to want to talk about it some people aren't but it's kind of I think it's like any other topic, it kind of just goes with, yeah, getting, getting to know a person and maybe they want to, maybe they don't, maybe they have their own, you know, their, because of what they've been through, they're closed and it will only take, you know, a certain amount of time before they're willing to talk about those kinds of things, but I don't think there's any there's any formula. Yeah. Can I just ask you about unity? Um, I think after the um, murder of George Floyd, lots of um, 
black Christians in the USA in evangelical churches, which were led mainly by white people and were quite seemed to be quite integrated and unified, were very, very disillusioned after that because they found that the people, the white people in their congregations did not appreciate the pain and the distress that this incident had caused them and other things, others like Trayvon Martin and so on, you know, there have been quite a string of them. So I think actually the result of that has been quite an exodus of black people from um, evangelical churches in America because mm. they, they felt that their their experience was not really appreciated there. Um, just wondered if you had any thoughts about that because that is obviously you know something that is not leading to unity. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's so it's so hard because. <coughs> Because of the opportunity that it presents, obviously, it it is. I guess whatever they they've they've been through would have been a, extremely painful, and I think, especially because church hasn't it has that element of you know being your family, your spiritual family. So you know, I imagine there's it's. There's extreme pain going with, you know, leaving your spiritual family, etc. But I think, yeah, there's, there's, I think there is something so powerful that we're missing out on if we will stay and have the conversation or we will, I mean, obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of these churches and that kind of thing, but if we, if we will place what God has said about us, or maybe what what God is saying to us, whether as white people or as black people, uh, in that particular situation. I think when, you know, as a church, we maybe start listening to the media, and, you know, this is all these things that have happened, as, as um, the, the gentleman was saying with, you know, when you see what's happening but you don't see the forgiveness and you just see the injustice after injustice after injustice and that starts to form your views as opposed to okay well this thing is happening in my church i don't go to church because of a white person i don't go to church it's hard to say it when you're you're experiencing injustice but ultimately we're not we're not we're not our highest calling is because of God, you know, God has called us, Jesus is our savior, and therefore in that situation, to revert to him, and unless it was a situation, I just don't, I guess that that unity, I think there's just so much power in, on an earthly level, it being cause for splits and schisms and whatever but i think it's such a powerful testimony if well that's what should happen but because of something which is otherworldly there is unity despite the fact that it would have been it would have been very natural to walk away or you know what was the supernatural thing that was happening in that church that kept them together um, 
way easier said than done. It hasn't happened to me. It hasn't happened in my church, but, but I just think there's so much room for amazing growth, healing, maturity. Yeah. Yeah, is that, do you know of churches in the UK where that's happened? Um, you, you were talking about churches in the US where you've seen, where you've heard about this happening. Black people leaving mm. churches over. Have you noticed that's that been a problem in the UK? No. Not that I know of. I. No, not that I know of. I mean, and also my most of my experience of church has been in Geneva. So, right. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. You've been in India for the past year. But you, yeah. Yeah, but all, through, all throughout there, this yeah. was happening. I was in Geneva, Geneva. Mm -hmm. and uh, but it was, I guess, in that sense, it was. Um, it was. I guess it presented an opportunity. You you, when that happens, you kind of think, okay, well, it's. It's like putting a, it's putting weight on your relationship. How much can our relationship withstand these hard conversations? So people that you've grown up with, gone to church with, this thing happens and you think, so are we, are we going to talk about this? But those difficult conversations, I think, ultimately, once you're, even when you're having them, they just, they bring you closer together and then they, you can put more weight on that relationship when the next thing comes because you realize, oh, that's okay, we're, we're still standing, you know? But when the conversation's not had, then I guess you just don't, you don't really know, you don't have that. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a strongly relational emphasis in your thinking about this that, yeah. that really matters, um, that real people connect with each other and, and talk and get to know each other. Uh, rather than, it seems like you're not approaching it so much from an abstract, mm. in an abstract way, talking about sort of societal, society, or something yeah. like talking about society in, in quite a ginormous and abstract sense, mm. or sy systems, not that those are necessarily um, irrelevant or, yeah. or wrong to talk about, but yeah, it's interesting to me that this is much more on just people, individual people making an effort and to be honest and um, connect with one another on an everyday level. Yeah, I think the other thing that it brings to mind is when we have, when we're generous in our assumptions, you know, about uh -huh. what yeah. someone meant. Or That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Generosity yeah. and assumptions. Yeah. yeah. We can be charitable or we can be uncharitable yeah. you know, in how we hear something, even, or how, what we assume about someone else. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe going back to the narrative, you know, when you see injustice after injustice mm -hmm. after injustice, it wears down your ability to be generous mm -hmm. in your assumptions, you know, because that's all you're sure. seeing, you know? Sure. Yeah. But yeah, if you, I guess in the context of your question, when that happens in the context of church, if I'm generous in my assumptions about the people who leave this church, I stay or would I still be leaving? You know, is it is it because I've just assumed that actually these people don't care and they're not doing anything, so I'm leaving? Or is it because they haven't figured out how to care in a way that I can relate to, or they haven't figured out how to find language so that I can feel more a part of this family? But 
My question is kind of related to the point that you just made and, and the example that Miriam gave. Um, and it's, it's more to do with the kind of structural or systemic aspects. Uh, and Miriam's example kind of suggests that there was a tension in, that church, in those churches which wasn't being recognised and which wasn't being dealt with. Um, so that when push came to shove, there wasn't sufficient um, mutual understanding um, for the people to stay and to reconcile the differences and to make the generous assumptions. Um, and I, I was wondering if you, I, 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 around 30 or 40 years ago, so it's probably changed a lot since now, I worked in a prison. Okay. Um, and um, in those days, I, I don't know what it's like now, um, black people were treated dreadfully. Um, by the prison staff. Um, and a number of us confronted people about this um, with no impact at all, other than on uh, one of my colleagues confronted someone about this and he ended up getting locked in a cell accidentally, um, which was really, really very difficult for him. Um, but one of the things I got involved with was trying to change culture, um, trying to change the way it's done structurally. Now, that, what we tried to do there wouldn't, wouldn't carry over to churches, but I wonder whether churches might anticipate. There's a moving Anglican church, I think, at the moment to try to recognise these issues and to deal um, with them by the church changing its culture in the way that things like recognising investments from the past, for example, mm. in slavery by the Anglican Church. Mm. I, I wonder what you felt about that, that kind of level of trying to intervene. Yeah, I, <coughs> I, I realised that I actually didn't say, it was in my notes, but I didn't say that obviously I, I see that there are, there is systemic racism and I do think that those issues should be addressed. If you do leave here thinking, oh, she doesn't think that's not what I'm saying. It's, they definitely do need to be addressed. And I think that every, every endeavor to, whether it's make amends or, you know, to, to address the hardships that people have gone through, I, you know, I, I, celebrate, I celebrate every endeavor to, to, to do so. Dawn, did you have a question? Yeah, I would just um, thank you, Priscilla, for, for this. And I guess one of the things I was noticing through this talk was the importance of communication and also the importance of sort of generous listening. And thinking back to the exercise that you had us do at the beginning, one of the things that I noticed, even just with two minutes, was to listen well without interrupting without sort of moving the conversation into a, an area without um, kind of imposing my response quickly that that's a, a real discipline um, and I just wondered if you had any other thoughts or further thoughts about 
how we can be good listeners to each other, especially to people who are different than we are, who are coming from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard. I think we just naturally love the sound of our own voice, you know? It's like, well, here's what I want to say. But, yeah, I think, I mean, maybe even just in terms of to communicate well, you, ha you have to you have to know what the other person has said, you know, you can't, you, otherwise you're just talking at cross purposes. And, you know, sure, you can err, even erring your opinion doesn't, you are less likely to know how it landed if you don't know what the other person was thinking anyway. So, yeah, I, I think listening is, listening is hard, but, uh, but I, I'm, I'm interested actually in that, in that exercise and how um, I'm, I'm always, I'm always surprised at how listening, just listening, you're not, you're not saying I'm sorry, you're not saying you're just listening, <laughs> and then, you know emphasizing to the person that they have been heard by saying, this is what I've heard you said. Mm -hmm. How that in itself can just be, bring some measure of healing to someone who hasn't been heard. And I think in the grand scheme of things like racism or massive injustices, you just think that's a small, it's a really small thing for something that's very big. It's very practical, like just tell me about, you know, what you're thinking, you know? And yeah, maybe in listening, making it, a, you know when you say something and then someone tells you, is this what you're thinking? And they say it in such a way that you think a thousand percent that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so I think, I don't know if this will make listening any more attractive, but thinking about it like that's what I want to hear someone say to me. That's exactly what I, I couldn't have said it better if I had my own words. So. <laughs> Yeah, attempting to make listening like that, you know, and yeah. Thank you. I think we're out of time and we'll stop there. But let's keep talking here at the pub, wherever it might be. <laughs> <laughs> attention, attention. Thank you all for coming. Thank you again to Priscilla.